It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Coming up on today's show, the mass shooting inquiry in Nova Scotia continues to make waves. Severe weather season is upon us. If it's not here already, we'll talk with a veteran storm chaser and find out what he's expecting to see this summer and what's going on with the Canadian men's national soccer team. Matches being cancelled, labour disputes, the World Cup is looming. We've done this before, we've got an update, but it's been a while, so it's time to check back in and find out what's going on in Nova Scotia as the inquiry into that province's mass shooting continues. And the, the, the things we hear... Um, time and time again are not great. They're not all that reassuring. Really some, some ups and downs, not only on the inquiry itself, um, but of course what happened on the, over the course of what I guess was two days. But um, yeah, I mean, just more and more discussion about what police are allowed to do as far as the inquiry goes. And um, now there's reports that, you know, the communication between police was awful. So let's get the latest. We're going to check in with Greg Mercer, who is the Atlantic Canada reporter with the Globe and Mail. Greg, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, has this inquiry, has it sort of, because there's been times where it's really brought, not, I mean, not even the incident, but just the inquiry itself has really been called into question. Has it sort of found its footing? Are we getting anywhere with this, do you think? Well, I think there's still a lot of anger. Um, there's no question. I mean, I mean, just a week ago, there were there were people boycotting it and, and telling their lawyers not to participate. Uh, this week, some of those people have come back because they want to hear from some key RCMP officials, um, particularly around uh, mistakes that were made in informing the public during this yeah. mass shooting, which... Let's not forget this was the worst we've ever seen in this country, 22 people dead. Um, and so just a lot of hard questions about how the police uh, did and did not in- inform the public. Um, okay, so when we, let's break those two apart. We'll get into the inquiry itself in a, or, or the incident itself in just a moment and the questions around it. But the inquiry, why were, why were they walking away? What was the problem? What were they upset about? And what was the, the resolution? So they were upset that three senior uh, RCMP members were given uh, special accommodations under this mandate to be trauma-informed. In other words, the inquiry put a, priori- a priority on protecting people's mental health. It didn't want to re-traumatize anyone as a, as a result of you know, giving testimony that was difficult. So they allowed uh, two of, of those three officers to avoid cross-examination. They were, they were uh, interviewed in advance, uh, you know, and, and that was shared by video. There was no sort of public forum. You know, lawyers for the families could not question these officers. Uh, a third one was able to uh, give testimony from home um, and was able to take breaks whenever he wanted. Um, and, and some of the families who, of people who were killed in this attack say, this is not what we asked for when we wanted this inquiry. We wanted the right to ask difficult questions, to be able to press them on things. I mean, these are the people who made key decisions throughout this manhunt, and they the families feel that they ought to have been uh, held to uh, a higher standard than, than what uh, what we saw. 
So now they're back. The, the inquiry continues. Um, and as you say, some of the questions around how this unfolded, and I think a lot of people, you know, we need to remind people this happened over a long period of time. It's not like an incident. So as you mentioned, the, the, what they knew, when they knew it, and what they told the public really seems to have a lot of people very concerned. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this uh, attack was spread over 13 hours. And, and at one point, the gunman escaped police and he went on the run and drove around rural Nova Scotia and continued to kill another nine people uh, on the second day of the attack. So there's a lot of questions around how much information police had about who was doing this. We now know uh, through this inquiry that they knew within minutes of the attack, they knew the gunman's name. They had multiple people tell them uh, in 911 calls that he was driving an identical looking police car. For, for, for multiple reasons, that was not shared with the public for many hours. Uh, and even once, we, we learned this week, once they had a picture of the fake patrol car yeah. that this gunman had made, they didn't share that for another three hours. And, and people are just saying, how can this be? This is critical information in the middle of a live manhunt with someone who's heavily armed murdering people at the side of the road. How could you not share that information? And... The response from RCMP is we didn't share it because we feel that would have put us at risk, right? They say it would have caused more problems for police. That is one of the things that came out uh, today, yes. So one of the senior communications officials for the RCMP in Nova Scotia said she was concerned about uh, vigilantism, that people would take their own protection into their own hands and would begin, you know, shooting at at, at random uh, RCMP vehicles. That was a concern that she had and other officers had. Uh, it doesn't fully explain, however, a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the miscues and just delays mm-hmm. in getting um, the message out to the public once they decided we are going to tell people what he's driving. We are going to share this photo. It was still a long delay to get these messages approved before they were, they were sent out on social media. Uh, and those are things that families say this is simply unacceptable. And also some talk about the fact that RCMP advising each other what they knew and letting people involved in different aspects of the investigation and trying to deal with the situation. They didn't even have all the information. They weren't communicating that properly. No, I mean, it's it just just a, a complete mess of communication. Yeah. That's one of the things that this inquiry has exposed is just how poorly organized the, the response was. At, at many points, we, it wasn't clear who was in charge. At one point, there was an officer who, you know, an hour earlier had said, I've been drinking. I've had four or five rum drinks. I should not be involved in this response. He has suddenly inserted himself into the police response, and he's directing officers. Uh, and then there were other officers coming in and contradicting him. And uh, for the, the, the frontline Mounties, the people who, who were the first people there, this was very confusing to, to figure out who should we listen to, who should we not listen to, who's actually in charge. This has been going on for a long time. What's the timeline here? And you know, it just seems to be getting worse and worse, uh, Greg. You know, what's how long was this going to play out? Do you think, in terms of this inquiry, what's the timeline? So we we still have several months of uh, testimony, of, of reports, of evidence to come out. You're right. There's a, it's been going on for for several months already, uh, but there's a lot left to uh, to be heard. The timeline is that in November, this inquiry is supposed to produce a report that's going to give recommendations to government on how to prevent this kind of thing in the future. And that could include, um, you know, changes to training for the RCMP around how they respond to mass shootings. Well, hopefully. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right, is is to come up with a way to make sure that whatever's gone wrong this time around, and it seems a lot has, uh, those mistakes aren't repeated. Greg, uh, thanks so much for the update. We'll do this again. 
Sounds good. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. That is Greg Mercer. Greg is the Atlantic Canada reporter for Globe and Mail covering this situation. And I mean, the the information that's been coming out of this inquiry from the entire, well, right from the start, really, uh, has just been really very concerning. The, the, this week, um, we've learned that it was RCMP miscues, largely, that led to uh, a big delay in warning the public that the killer involved in this incident had himself a replica RCMP vehicle, and that's what he was driving around the province as he was carrying out his rampage. Um, and that wasn't that information wasn't passed along to the public. They weren't told that um, this guy was driving what looked to be a marked RCMP patrol car. Um, they didn't issue that description to the public. And then, as you heard Graham say, um, part of the reasoning for that was announced in court this morning that RCMP, or part in the inquiry this morning, RCMP saying they were concerned that if they did go ahead and issue that alert, uh, it would only have led to more dead police. There's a transcript of an interview with a senior Nova Scotia RCMP official, Leah Scanlon, um, who says in this interview, that uh, in rural places like Porta Peak, Nova Scotia, where the killing started, people handle bleep themselves, adding that had the public known the shooter was dressed as an RCMP officer, that information would have put RCMP members in harm's way because they would have handled it themselves. So it's, it's troubling as we learn more and more about this situation. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I was mentioning um, the situation in Le Mans that I saw on Twitter. Um, it's a small, uh, small community uh, um, south and east of Calgary, apparently, and I got a text from a listener saying, hey, thanks for mentioning the severe weather in Le Mans uh, slash Milo. Yeah, Milo also down there. Um, small farming community southeast of Calgary on Saturday. I have family that lives there, and there's been no coverage of this storm anywhere. They had over seven inches of rain in 45 minutes. There's flooding, crop damage, cattle deaths, water in basement, and zero coverage on any media. So thank you for acknowledging it. Yeah, like I say, I saw it on social media, some reports from people just documenting, because I think what happened is it was a storm that was passing through and stalled. Right, and that's the worst thing. It was a heavy storm, and usually, you know how thunderstorm is. It moves through pretty quick. It's here. It's gone. Uh, but when they stop and they stall out and just continually dump that rain like that, you get the seven inches of rain that fell on Le Mans and caused all kinds of problems. Yeah, they need the moisture in parts of Alberta, especially in the south and east. Not that much moisture. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the issue. But uh, I mean, I guess it's severe weather season. I think I don't know what the official start is, but I know a guy who does. Uh, let's find out. We're going to chat now with uh, Nevin Demiliano, who is uh, with Prairie Storm Chasers. Uh, Nevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jay. Um, so, okay, yeah, severe weather season. Is there an official start date? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think it's already started for yeah. sure. I think for us, it's it's really May through to September, but 
the most active stuff we see in June, July, and August. Yeah, that's when it really, really ramps up. Now, how have we seen, like you say, we, we do see storms throughout May and into June for sure, early June. Um, this storm that we saw in southeast Alberta this weekend, or just southeast of Calgary, I mean, seven inches of rain. So, I mean, how has the start of severe weather season gone so far? Some big storms, obviously. Yeah, it's it's been interesting for sure, and and uh, that southern Alberta storm was was definitely interesting to watch. Uh, two days really that they had rain in that area from storms, uh, and it was very dry before that, which doesn't help either. I think I saw one of the farmers in the area uh, post that they got their two years of rain that they were looking for in like one day. So, yeah. Uh, all at once is not always ideal, and it was a very small area. So, but this is the things that that can happen in Alberta and on the prairies, and and this is the, the season for it. Hey, Nevin, I think for me, Twister is when I started to hear about storm chasers, and I, I think when that movie came out, I was working in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, and uh, there were twisters. I mean, that's what happens in this part of the world. So it became sort of a thing. What about you? Like, how long has this been part of your life? This kind of storm chasing activity. Sure. Uh, probably over 12 years now. Um, I've been interested in weather for my whole life, and it kind of started from a fear and turned into really curiosity and then a, a pursuit, really. Um, so, yeah, but that's how about 12 years now I've been chasing. Now, when you're chasing, you ever get yourself in any wild situations? I mean, when you're chasing, how, how successful have you been as a chaser? Uh, yeah, I think, always, I think all of our chasers kind of have some stories, uh, and it's not always just about tornadoes. It's, it's sometimes... Lightning uh, is very <laughs> a very dangerous thing when we're out there, and also big hail, obviously. So yeah. definitely in Saskatchewan around Swift Current, I've gotten to some situations where the windshield didn't look so good after. No, I hear you. Absolutely, no question. So, I mean, it, it's not possible to sit here on June 7th and say, hey, it's going to be this kind of severe weather season or this kind or that kind. We don't know, do we? We have to wait and see how it plays out? That's totally right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the next couple of weeks will really be a good telling sign how much moisture we get and just wh- how the weather patterns set up. Um, what was last year like? I'm wondering with the intense heat that we saw. You remember how hot it was, and I know heat is a factor for severe weather a lot of the time. Did it cause more severe weather? No, it it actually prevented a lot of severe weather. When we talk about that heat dome, it's often associated with a ridge of high pressure. And so that was kind of centered over BC for a lot of uh, last summer. And so we didn't see those low pressure systems come across the prairies like we normally do. And that's what you need, right? You need a change in the weather. If it just stays hot, we're fine. That's right. That's right. We can still get thunderstorms and we can still get severe weather, but it, it's it's a different kind and, and, and different uh kind of things that we have to think about with uh, more wind events and things like that, or lightning starting fires and things like that. Uh, in terms of how you prep, I mean, how does it work for you? I always wonder because we, we're talking about a large part of the world. When we're talking about, you know, even if you just say Saskatchewan and Alberta, and you've got to be where the storm is that day. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you tackle sort of being a storm chaser? That's my favorite part. I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> because for me, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like solving a puzzle yeah. or, or trying to pick the best place to be at a certain time. And uh, just like any meteorologist would use, we use all those tools like satellite and weather models to try to simulate the atmosphere and, and predict where all those ingredients that we need are going to come together. And it doesn't always work out. Um, the science isn't perfect. And I, I think everybody knows that just from looking at a forecast. But it does give us the ability to plan. And I think when we're storm chasing, we never go into 
a severe weather setup without a plan. We know which way the storm should be moving, yep. uh, how fast. And, and I say, even if you're going out camping, like getting that forecast is so important because then you can have an idea of what's in the cards for that day. Yeah, so a lot of what you do, I mean, you're you're trying to find it, you're trying to seek it out, but a lot of the information that you're gathering and the preparations you're making, they can apply to all of us in this part of the world. Absolutely, for sure. And I think it really does help uh, in that situation where you're really exposed, like camping or on a road trip, uh, just knowing what's in the cards and knowing that you might be able to find uh, a better structure to hide out in if something arises or you get that warning across your phone. Yeah, a hundred percent. No question. Uh, Nevin, best of luck this severe weather season, and uh, we'll be in touch as it rolls along. You bet. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That is Nevin Demiliano, who is with Prairie Storm Chasers, and this is what he does. Uh, this is what he spends his time on, and uh, he's not alone. There's a lot of people that do this. I, I, I'm definitely um, more aware of severe weather than I was growing up. I think if you were in this part of the world, especially if you were in Edmonton in 1987, the Black Friday changed the way we view severe weather and not just here, but across the province and across the country. In fact, you, you know, the tornado that tore through Edmonton, uh, suddenly tornadoes were something we were all um, more aware of. I was actually out of town when it happened. I was on vacation in the Okanagan. So I missed Black Friday, but um uh, another major tornado that struck Alberta happened in Pine Lake in, I don't know, I don't know when Pine Lake was, probably 2000 and something, I would guess, somewhere around there, 2003, 2004 maybe. And uh, I was working for Global Edmonton on TV and that tornado hit and we were dispatched there and spent the whole day there doing doing hits. And there's something that changed for me when you walk into this campground, which is where the tornado hit, and you see boats in trees, or you see trailers hanging from trees. And, you know, they're talking about, well, there's a bunch of trailers that used to be here, but are now in the lake. And you see, you know, trees sheared off and sent through the air like missiles. Like, I wasn't even there for the storm, but you see the aftermath, you see the destruction, you see the damage, and it really makes you recognize how dangerous um, these storms can be, you know, and there was a loss of life at Pine Lake too, uh, just like there was on Black Friday. So it's not something to be trifled with. And I think we've all learned that lesson um, through a couple of tragic incidents uh, in this part of the world where we now know and we're a lot better equipped to deal with. But like Nevin said, a lot of the stuff that he does, you know, sort of spells out where he's going to go based on he wants to be as close to these storms as he can be to document them. But the information that he uses to get him there is the same information that we can use if we're going to be there. Okay, what's going on? I, I, I think I kind of understand it, but we've got an expert on who follows soccer in this country to try and walk us through exactly what's happening with our men's soccer team, because it's really turned into a mess here. Um, Derek Van Deest is a multimedia sports journalist for the Edmonton Sun and the Edmonton Journal and a national soccer columnist for Post Media. Derek, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time once again today. Hey, Shay, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, okay, so, so help me explain what happened here. They're supposed to play a game against Iran. We talked to you about that. That one got cancelled, not because they wanted to cancel it, for this same reason, this was because Iran had a lot of political implications. So they scrapped it, replaced it with a game with Panama, then they canceled that one. Just bring us up to speed. What happened this weekend? 
Well, what happened was kind of a debacle this weekend, I guess. Um, it all stems from Canada qualifying for the for the FIFA World Cup for the first time since 1986. So when you qualify for the FIFA World Cup, you get bonus money. So the 32 countries that qualify for the FIFA, for the World Cup, well, basically it's a cut of the pie. So the, the FIFA World Cup generates, I believe it's in the neighborhood of 2 or $3 billion dollars uh, that tournament, that month-long tournament that's happening in Qatar in November. And basically, they divide up that pie to all the base, the federations of the different countries around the world. And if you qualify for the tournament, you essentially get a $10 million bonus for just for qualifying. And the further you go in the tournament, the more money the federation, your soccer federation gets. Okay. Now, the dispute here is how to divide up that $10 million that the federation got. And the players believe that they should get 40% of that prize money, and then the rest goes to whatever Canada soccer programs they want to fund. Canada soccer, from my understanding, offered them 10% and saying, hey, we need this money to fund these grassroots programs, to fund these other teams, so that's all we can afford to give you. And that's where the dispute is right now, is, is what kind of the pie should the players get from this? Gotcha. Okay, now, do we know that 10%, how does that stack up against what other countries pay players? Do you have any idea? Yeah, it does. It, it, it's, the, the thing is, like, other countries, um, you, know, you know, they pay around 40% to other countries. Um, but it, 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 depending on the country, um, it, it, let's say, for example, let's take England, for example. The, the players that play for England, they don't make their money playing for England. They make their money playing for Manchester United sure. and Chelsea and none of those. And they make really good money playing for that. So they, so basically, the, the agreement they have in England is that we'll give you forty percent, but you basically donate that back to a charity or whatever. They don't, they don't live on that money, and then it goes kind of back to the federation. So I think what Canada Soccer was looking at, they were saying, well, you know, you guys don't live on this money anyway, so you know, why don't we just kind of put it back to the federation? And but Canadian soccer players don't make twenty-five million dollars a year right. playing soccer. In you know Chelsea, Man United, so they are dependent on that money. So I think that's kind of where it stems on. Every country is a little different, but in in the big countries, the Brazils, the Argentinas, those players don't really rely on the national team money because they're making so much money playing for their club teams. So that's where the the, the difference is a little bit here. And, and, and the Canadian players, they're not millionaires. They're not millionaires coming here to play for your national team. Like a lot of those guys play for smaller clubs. Uh, here in North America or in Europe, and they don't make the millions and millions and millions of dollars that some of the other players on the bigger clubs do. So th- that's kind of like the NHL players who go to world championships or Olympics. It's not about money. They make their money playing for their club teams, and this is just to represent their country. It's sort of the reverse. It, you know, you, it, you've got players in Canada. It's not the same situation for soccer players, obviously. No, it's not, and it's, it's exactly that. And I think there's also there's been a dispute because when players go play, you know, hockey players, for example, go play at the world championships they're not you're right they're not playing it for the money but hockey canada goes out of their way to to bring the families over to wherever the tournament is to and to kind of cater to the families and give them tickets and make sure that the players are taken care of and their families are taken care of uh and i think that's also part of the dispute here is um the players wanted basically unlimited tickets for family and friends and they wanted canada kind of take care of them and, and help them with accommodations in qatar and fly them over and i think 
Canada Soccer said, "Hey, wait a minute, uh, you know that's 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 a little too much for us. We, we can give you two tickets per player, and you guys figure out your friends and family." And I think that's also part of the dispute as well. So there's there's a lot of moving parts here, and it's unfortunate that they they came they haven't started talking yet about this. Once they qualified for the World Cup in March, those conversations should have started of how kind of you're going to divide up the pie and how you know you're going to get their friends and family over to Qatar and and things like that. And from my understanding, the players have been upset because they've kind of been stonewalled here because Canada soccer kept putting these negotiations back and back and back. And I think they felt that their backs were against the wall and the only card they had to play was not to play this this exhibition game against Panama. Okay, so that was the choice that they made. Now the question, Derek, is how much damage have they done? There's a lot of people really, really angry that think the players made the wrong move here. They had a lot of good momentum, a lot of good PR building around that team heading towards the World Cup. People were all over the qualifying matches. And now they got a lot of people that are upset. Do you think they've damaged... Um, Sort of some of that momentum they built up in Canada. No, they have certainly they have. They they not only damaged the momentum and the, and the, the feel good story that they were. They've damaged their reputation a little bit, and also Canada soccer has it. They've gone back to Canada soccer for a long time. Had a reputation of not really having the best people at the top and running the organization properly. And maybe that's why Canada struggled so, so many years to, to qualify for the World Cup. And, and, it, and, it, and it looks like this again. It, it, this is a debacle that shouldn't happen at this level. It shouldn't happen with this federation. Uh, and this is something that should have been, you know, worked out between the players and, and the federation a long time ago. So, yeah, it makes the entire program look bad. Mm-hmm. It makes the entire Canada Soccer Federation look bad. Uh, the president, Nick Bontis, was, was had a press conference, and he looked bad in that press conference. It just makes the whole situation really just look bad and, and look amateurish. And I think that's the one thing that Canada didn't need going through the World Cup. They didn't need this distraction. They needed to focus on getting you know preparing for that world cup preparing for those three games that they're going to play in qatar and this is just a distraction they didn't need so they it should have been handled better by everyone all around okay now they're supposed to play a game against curacao this weekend i think or sometime this week is that is that going to happen or are we into a protracted labor dispute here no that's going to happen that game is on thursday so the players got back and started they're back on the field yesterday so they went back to practice now the game against curacao it's obviously curacao it's a smaller nation but this is going to be uh what they call a Nations League game. So it's an actual officially sanctioned tournament from CONCACAF. Okay. Now, deciding not to play a friendly or an exhibition game is one thing. Deciding not to step onto the field to play a sanctioned game with CONCACAF or FIFA, that's another thing altogether. If you, don't, you, just, you decide not to show up and play those games, then, then it's going to be FIFA and CONCACAF that are going to sanction you. And, and Canada doesn't want that. The players don't want that because they can just start kicking you out of tournaments. And Worst case scenario, if, if the players decide we're not going to play in these games and FIFA just turns around and says, okay, well, then don't bother coming to the World Cup like they did with Russia, like they did with some other teams they've done in the past. They just said, okay, you guys can't play in the World Cup then. And that's obviously a worst case scenario. It's not yeah. going to get to that. The players understand that, so they have to play these games. They only played the game that they, they – only that's why they kind of skipped the Panama game. It was a friendly. There wasn't going to be any consequences outside of – the Canadian Soccer Association. But, but if they miss this game, then you're going to have CONCACAF stepping in, you're going to have FIFA stepping in, and it's going to be a, a whole world of hurt. Gotcha. So there's leverage that can be used here, and they will use it, but they know that uh, the consequences could be too dire to go down that road. Okay. And World Cup itself, everything's on track for that. That's not going to get derailed. I mean, nobody wants that, right? Not the players, not Canada Soccer. Nobody wants a threat on World Cup participation. 
No, no, that's going to, you know, because they'll just take that World Cup money back. So <laughs> they have to play the World Cup. They've already gotten, they're going to get the $10 million for qualifying. And then obviously, depending on how well they do at the tournament, um, they'll, they'll keep getting yeah. bonus money. So no, that, they, that's, they're not, not going to play in the World Cup. They have to go to the World Cup. But this kind of just stalls their preparations because they don't have a lot of time as a group, as a national team to train and practice and get ready for the World Cup because these players in mid-August are going to all go back to their club teams and they're going to be playing with their club teams. So I think that's one of the the concerns is that they're wasting time here where they should be practicing and preparing and getting ready and playing exhibition games. They're wasting time negotiating contracts. Yeah, that makes sense. Derek, great update. Exactly what we're looking for. Thank you very much, sir. No problem, Shay. Thanks for having me on. That is Derek Van Deest. Derek is a multimedia sports journalist for the Edmonton Sun and the Edmonton Journal and a national soccer columnist for Post Media. And uh, so we'll see. Looks like things are back on track, at least for the game against Curacao, and there's no threat to them not playing at the World Cup in Qatar coming up, I think it's in four or five months, sometime in the fall. They had to move it. Typically, it would be a summertime event, but... Due to the temperatures in that part of the world, they said, yeah, we're not going to be playing this in July and August. It's just not doable. So they've moved it back to like October, November. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.